0: Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and uh, economics, I guess, today. So, yeah, uh, usually I try and like talk about things that I know very well and that I've already thought about a bit so that I can, you know, talk more easily for 30 minutes without a script. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about some ideas that I haven't develop very fully at all and they're sort of at the edge of my uh, knowledge uh, so namely I'm going to be talking about uh, economics of inflation and uh, valuation as applied to blockchains. Uh, so like the short summary is that like you can sort of treat uh, uh, blockchains as governments and uh, how they function in uh, like a very obtuse sort of framing, uh, and this gives you sort of a way to model uh, valuation of sort of the token used to exchange and interact natively on a blockchain with uh, the fiat money of a government. So, in in the same way that sort of, uh, because I'll develop this a bit this idea further, but And the way that you can sort of see fiat money printed by a government is sort of like a measure of confidence uh, in the value of that government. You can also see uh, tokens uh, used to pay fees on a blockchain as sort of a measure of confidence in that blockchain. At least the degree to which people are willing to use that uh, token as a medium of exchange reflects their confidence in in the chain as a whole. Like one way to sort of square the circle here and unite different points of view is that um often people say well people that espouse uh the fiscal theory of the price level that would say that you know uh, the value of the dollar is sort of akin to having stock in the u.s government uh, and then people also say that uh, tokens are sort of like having stock and the value of a network itself so Uniting those two views, uh, uh, having tokens is sort of like having dollars, <laughs> if the blockchain were a sovereign government printing its own money. So I guess like the starting point for like this discussion is like uh, this sort of point of view that yet money is like stock and the go- and government issuing that money, uh, and sort of like the broad name for that theory is, uh, I guess, the fiscal theory at the price level i said that theory that the way i summarize is not like a great way to explain it um I, the high level reasons it's called that my understanding is it's sort of like applying uh basically traditional price valuation as you would to like a you know company uh to sort of the fiscal outlay and situation of government itself um i guess we'll explain it a bit <laughs> i said it, we're, we're going to explain it a bit later a few times so we just you know keep chugging on so, uh, the reason I got sort of interested in this is that uh, John Cochrane, who's, who's an economist at, is, that, is it at Stanford? I forget, somewhere. Um, he recently sort of published a book, uh, sort of like a textbook on this, which I've been finding, you know, quite a lot fun to read. It's called, well, Fiscal the Theory at the Price Level. Got published by Cambridge this year, but the the sort of lecture notes, notes version of it have been online for years, and he's obviously written papers on it too, and he's like a prominent sort of, uh, you know, person on this. He also has a blog called uh, The Grumpy Economist, which is also where I first you know came across some of these ideas. And so, I mean, the basic sort of like summary of like the predictions of the theory is that, uh. The main thing it's it's sort of trying to sort of predict or model is the price level. So that's basically how much actual stuff dollars buy, or euros or whatever your fiat money is. So that's the price level. So, if, you know when you're uh, you know uh, sort of an average basket of goods uh, can be bought for you know a thousand bucks, and the next year it's you know eleven $1, hundred. The, the difference is sort of what we call inflation. Uh, whereas like a specific item increasing in price. Could either be inflation or an actual increase in price. So, say, you know, let's say you're, you know, housing has gotten sort of more expensive in what we say real terms, because even if you adjust for uh, this sort of inherent inflation, uh, housing is still more expensive, you know, stuff like that. Or, like, you know, after the oil shock in the 70s, oil was generally more expensive because there was just less supply of it. Uh, so, that's an actual, you know, increase in real price. Versus just a change in denominator. One way to also sort of like tell uh, this kind of price value is to look at like the relative value of currencies. Um, this is a bit, bit tricky because also that reflects sort of like the like some some of this this valuation stuff gets a bit tricky once like you like consider other currencies existing because then it, it, to some extent currency strength uh, becomes a measure of like the trade flows between countries. Because if you're importing goods from a country, uh, sometimes you need to spend, uh, you need to have fiat money of that country. So usually this this is the case for like developing countries uh, and their fiscal outlays. Often they have trouble having enough uh, dollars and other uh, currencies because sort of uh, if they want to buy goods from like the U.S. or some other you know developed industrialized country. Uh, they're going to need to be paying that country's currency, because they don't want to expect... They don't want to, like, take, you know, whatever random, you know, currency that government's imprinting. um printing. So often, they need to manage cash reserves very carefully. Uh, so this is sort of an ongoing issue. Many countries, like you know, Pakistan had, like, a, had some trouble with that last year, I think. Uh, anyhow, back to the, to the main thrust. So you value sort of... Uh, to determine the sort of price level, you sort of treat the fiat money of a government as sort of like stock. Um, and so basically, the, in essence, uh, what the price level should be is you look at sort of all the debt that the government has currently, uh, and you look at sort of the expected future sur- surpluses that they're going to have. So basically all the, you know, net tax money they're going to be able to bring in after spending and you look at sort of the real value of that based on what the price level is expected to be and, or rather what the price level is and you sort of discount based on sort of some kind of interest rate, which reflects like how uh, much you value future money or how little you value future money compared to to the present. And so this one way to summarize it is basically sort of the the net present real value of future surpluses as to equal current debt. to sort of this, a similar equation you get uh, if you were to try and value very basically the stock of a company just based on like future. It's so like one way to value the value of a company companies, it represents basically future. You take the current sort of liabilities and assets that gives you current value, then you sort of uh, glob in, you know, future surpluses. Uh, so future revenue, future profits rather, would be sort of globbed into that value as well. And into that value, you and the starting value is sort of, you know, assets minus liabilities. And so, like, what's interesting is, like, obviously I won't be able to, like, develop it as fully as someone, as, as the book or as, as, you know, an actual economist. What's interesting is that, like, one way to sort of derive this kind of valuation method is that you should sort have of look at the fiat currency as basically worthless. So what sort of gives value to the fiat currency is kind of interesting. It's that... Basically, uh, the reason the fiat currency is sort of interesting is that A, it's what debt is issued in by the government, and B, it's what you have to pay taxes in. So even if uh, people in the US didn't use the dollars as a medium of exchange at all, like they all used you know, Canadian dollars or whatever, maybe the, the analogy would work better in the opposite sense, but I'll keep going with this one. So let's say that a, the Americans use Canadian dollars for like all their daily exchanges, Well, at the end of the year, they still need to pay taxes in U.S. dollars. So they still need to convert them back. And so that already sort of has a sort of effect on the price level. So you need to make this conversion. Uh, And another thing is that, well, you know, U.S. debt is denominated in dollars. So like one sort of simple way to sort of understand how like an equation like this arises is you look, is you imagine that like the government exists for exactly one day. So at the beginning of the day, there's some outstanding debt that the government has to, you know, that's maturing, the government has to pay. And the debt is basically just an IOU that says, okay, on you know this day, I'm gonna give you X dollars. (laughs) And so the way the government satisfies the demands at the beginning of the day is they just print a bunch of money and they give it to the the people that hold bonds. And then at the end of the day, people need to pay taxes uh, based on the real sort of income or whatever thing you're taxing, real consumption, real wealth, whatever you're taxing. So there's some real value to this and basically this real value is sort of exchanged into dollars just for the sake of paying the tax. And basically, nobody wants to hold dollars at the end of the day because they're sort of fundamentally like fake, right? In this sort of artificial model. You know, things the government's only going to exist for one day, so your dollars will have basically no use afterwards because you won't be you won't have to pay taxes ever again. Uh and you know, no bonds will ever be pressured again. So reasoning that way basically you should sort of have an equilibrium model where the sort of money printed at the beginning of the day has to equal the money soaked up by the end of the day. So your bonds the, have to match uh, the real tax flows you get at the end of the day, the real surplus. Uh, and if you sort of sort of extend this into, into the future, sort of taking uh, money as like this valueless object, you end up with the fact that if you look at the current outstanding debt that's maturing, uh, that has to equal sort of the net present value of future surpluses. So, one sort of consequence of this is that, like, you can sort of play both sides of the equation. Like, so, if the if the government is expected to have less real surpluses in the future, uh, the dollar is going to inflate in value, rather. So it's going to be going to buy less stuff because basically you need sort of more, you need to de- decrease the real value of the debt uh, by sort of the idea is that when the dollar inflates in value, well, uh, it's sort of a when there's inflation, it means the dollar is sort of less valuable. Uh, you need uh, prices are going to rise nominally, but that but since debt doesn't change, uh, the amount of debt is still the, you know, the same number, it means that sort of the real size of the debt is decreased. So, basically, the real size of the debt has to match, yeah, you know, the future surpl- surpluses. That's another way of looking at it. Um, so Less surpluses means that you need the debt to shrink through inflation. Uh, you know, conversely, if you have sort of extra surpluses, then you have deflation. That's usually a bit of a rare scenario. So, anyhow, the point is that basically, like, uh, you know, I haven't developed this a lot, so you don't need to understand it very well either. But basically, the sort of analogy I'm making is that, uh, you know, fiat money inherently has no value. Uh, You know, it's just paper, but it sort of has an interesting balancing equation because a government issues it to pay off debt and also requires it to pay taxes. And so this creates a balancing equation where sort of the the debt represents sort of a fiscal aspect of the government structure. And so more debt and less revenue means that the the money that it's printing to pay off the debt uh, is worth less. And less debt and more revenue means that the, the money it's printing is actually worth more because it sort of represents uh, more stuff. And, uh, and ultimately, sort of, yeah, you have that. And so you can you can try and sort of make this sort of analogy extend to like the case of a blockchain. So the idea is that like a, a token is inherently worthless and that it gains some, some sort of value through sort of what's happening in this kind of sovereign interaction. And then people may then use it as a medium exchange afterwards because they said they have confidence in it because of that. Because there's actual, you know, non-zero price level associated with it at that point. You can actually buy stuff with it. Um, For proof of work chains, like this analogy doesn't work super great. For, I think, Ethereum, I I think the analogy is a bit richer because you can actually say more stuff. And also, there's sort of an interesting aspect where you can sort of decompose the payment of validators from sort of like, uh, you, you can sort of see it as like a, a real expenditure ra- rather than like a, just a token-valued one. I can elaborate a bit on that later. So with referral work, like, it's a bit, it's a bit pulled by the strings already uh, because it, doesn't, it actually doesn't work, like, super great. Because the basic idea is that, well, you have a sort of sovereign entity, which is sort of a blockchain uh, creating money out of thin air. That's true. And then there's... One way to think about it is that sort of issuance is debt. So if you look at sort of net future issuance, that's sort of like, uh, that's kind of of sort of debt in some way. Um, And basically, and you can sort of, one good way to model this if we're trying to do this mathematically is you look at each block as like a time period for this debt stuff. So you look at sort of outlaid money as like, the basically the block reward for a given block that's sort of like the the money you're printing. and then you sort of compare that with the sort of expected fee revenues or whatever thing you're you're looking at into, into the future. With with proof of work, it's it's a bit tricky because like all the fees go to the miner. Uh, at least with like naive by proof of work, I mean Bitcoin. Uh, like if you look at sort of Bitcoin's fee structure, it's it's very simple. But Ethereum, it becomes a bit more interesting because some of it is like disappeared. So I think that's where the analogy is like is like makes more sense. So in Ethereum, like, simplifying massively, in essence, when people pay fees, uh, you know, part of it, part of the rewards are, I think, issuance still. Uh, I think that might go away eventually, or I think it's, like, forever. So anyhow, like, part of the award the to a validator is issuance, uh, part of the reward is the fees and the blocks, and part of the fees are not given to the validator, but instead burned. And there's, like, a whole dynamic algorithm about this. But the point is that since you're burning the fees, this is a much better analogy to like, tax revenue. So if you look at a government, when they have a surplus because of taxation, essentially that money is just d- disappears. I mean, you can sort of use it to pay off debt in some sense, but it's sort of equivalent to burning the money, than printing it, you know, like if that's the same, It's it has the same effect to basically say, okay, I'm going to use tax surpluses to pay down the deficit. And to also it's, that's the same effect as like taking the tax surpluses, throwing them into a pit, lighting them on fire and then printing money. Like, it's the same exact effect. So to, make, so to make the analogy work better, you can just say that, well, any fees that are, well, actually, the analogy works works great because you actually do burn them. You, those tokens are just gone. Um, so in essence, you can sort of see surpluses here as being like all the times you're going to burn tokens for fees. So that gives you sort of the, the right side of the equation here, which is sort of the net present value of all these surpluses so you, you can sort of look at the net present value of all of the times you're going to burn tokens so you can look at sort of the expected value of this that's sort of the right right side and the left side is going to be sort of the debt uh, it's a bit trickier to sort of quantify but you can sort of see this is like kind of issuance in a sense so you look at Uh, I'm not not quite sure if you need to look at like all the tokens that have been issued so far or just the ones that are sort of Issued up to that are sort of maturing in that time period so to speak because some money is in circulation which sort of affects this this calculation But you can sort of imagine that like there's sort of a mega epoch in which like all ETH has to be sort of redeemed, you know Uh, And so that would give you a sort of valuation formula because you basically need the if you look at the net present value a future surpluses based on like a your prediction of that uh you're going to get a nominal value in terms of your token let's say eth and then on the left you have sort of the issuance purpose and sort of like the debt because in essence you can sort of look at like you know tokens that have been printed to pay validators as kind of like an iou you know iou actual value you know i'm just giving you a fake token but you know eventually you're going to want to like actually redeem that for value you know or eventually you're just going to want to get rid of it to pay you know fees on the network you know So it represents, like, things you can do on the network. Because you can see fees is like taxation, basically. So it's like, well, I'm giving you this, and it has value because you can use it to pay taxes on Ethereum. And so, basically, issuance, uh, you have issuance on the left, and you have sort of the net present value of surpluses on the right burns. And the idea is that, well, the real value of the token has to be such that these two match. So if I look at the real value of you know surpluses, that has to match the your you know nominal value of uh of, of you know debt or issuance. But I think I think if you were to actually like try and like crunch the math here, you would get like a valuation that's probably way too low, because the sort of the the naive model sort of ignores the fact that you can sort of use uh well it sort of ignores two things. One is that Uh, You need to take into account, like, the existing circulation aspects of the token. You also need to take into account the fact that, like, there's value because something is recognized as a medium of exchange. This is a lot more true with fiat currencies at the moment. So, like, the dollar has inherent value just because you can use it to buy a lot of stuff. So that's that makes it useful. Uh, So the dollar is more useful than, say, I don't know, Zimbabwean dollars. Uh, not to pick on any particular country, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's more valuable than like your you 1940s dosha marks, you know, so that's one aspect, the circulation aspect. The other one is like, even, even sort of outside the chain, inside the chain, there's like some value because you sort of, maybe these tokens are sort of like utility tokens, like you do them like vote on stuff, you know, so there's like, there's like some valuation component that you need to have there, you know. You can also sort of see this as like taxation too, if you take a very broad view of taxation, right? Uh, and then, of course, like the, the probably a large portion of many tokens' value is just speculation. So, like you basically you think that other people are going to think the token's value is going to rise in price, you know. Also, there's like uh, you sort of you're sort of affected by like the exchange rate. Yeah, that's that's against the third effect is that you sort of. Uh, your 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 currency's valuation is affected by the valuation of other currencies and, like, sort of what other governments are doing, in a sense. Like, um, because there's, like, because there's a sort of inherent need for people to invest money, so that they'll find ways to sort of invest money in ways that they get, you know, the best risk-adjusted return. And then you also have the fact that sort of risk appetite seems to, like, vary over time. So because of this, you have sort of inflows and outflows in, into certain sectors. Uh, so that's why, like, unfortunately, like, you know, major cryptocurrencies, their, you know, valuation seems to be, you know, correlated with the stock market as a whole. Uh, which, you know, it sort of contradicts this sort of fiscal outlay theory. Because basically, if you look at like, if you if you take this like fiscal theory of the price level and you apply it to Bitcoin, like in theory, the price should be fixed and should never change because like the, basically the effect, the, the affected, uh, basically whatever surpluses would mean in proof of work, it's a bit less clear since do not burn right? Or at least with Bitcoin, you know. But basically, like every all the parameters of like uh, the issuance are basically known, more or less. Um, there's some uncertainty, I guess, because sort of in theory, I guess the, uh, the I guess the, or the dates of the happening is known exactly. I think it depends on how much hash power is on the network, right? Yeah, you, ha- you need to, you need to have some expectations of how much hash power is going to come onto the network because that affects, if I remember correctly, how long it's going to take for the supply. Uh, issuance to to decline but regardless the the sort of total number is fixed right so because of these strong caps on like issuance and like the fee structure it should basically like basically the the sort of price should be just one number that doesn't change if you look at like a basic basic fiscal theory of the price of bitcoin so obviously the, the fiscal theory alone is not sufficient to explain the price of bitcoin So, the Ethereum I think it would be a bit more interesting because you have this sort of, the the analogies match, but much better because you actually have supply and whatnot. Yeah. So I guess, and I think the analogy probably works much better if you, like, go beyond just the fiscal theory and you start seeing a decentralized project as, like, a sovereign entity unto itself. It's sort of like the network state state idea, you know. Um, this becomes a bit more like tangible, because uh, sort of sometimes you can see like networks as like political projects in the sense that like you have, and, like the very small piece sense of it, that you have like, or large pie. I mean, if you read it, because you have like voting and stuff, and so you can sort of see the if you have like a DAO, people often like try and pretend it's like a government, you know, and so like a DAO issuing its own currency, then having votes and you know taxes, essentially poll taxes, right? uh so you can sort of extend the government analogy that way as well oh yeah i guess another point that i wanted to bring up is that like often like one component um so so like one so one component that's i didn't talk about too much is like is like fees that are paid directly to validators slash miners so those are a bit harder to fit into the theory i think a better way to look at them is that like the fee because basically a fee that's that's paid to the miner. Okay, I think I remember my train of thought here. So, like, a fee that's paid to the miner, you can see there's, like, two components. One, it's a fee that's burned, and then it's you print money and you give it to the miner. It's equivalent to doing that, right? Like, anytime you pay a direct fee to someone, it's equivalent to burning it and then issuing that money by printing it. So, one way to look at what's happening is that miners get debt uh, from the from the chain, and then that's sort of instantly redeemed by printing money and then all fees are just burned uh and so this sort of makes applying the fiscal theory a bit simpler because then you can sort of look at like issuance as like all the debt that happens over time and use a fiscal valuation there so if you look at sort of the net issuance of bitcoin that's sort of all the the debt that you're going to be accruing over time and then surpluses are basically all the fees that you're going to receive and so then there would become useful to look at like you could probably actually try and apply that to model like the dynamics of bitcoin after like you start after you sort of lose the debt component because basically it's sort of like looking at the dynamics of the u.s government if they stopped running having deficits you know uh it would probably change change like things a lot so basically like you can sort of see bitcoin after the block reward as like bitcoin but you only have bitcoin but you don't have any deficits anymore sort of Although under this model, basically fees are sort of like uh, taxation that you use to, you know, have. Well, basically, basically the fees mean that there's sort of no net deficit uh, because you're sort of collecting taxes, burning them immediately, issuing. So it's a net out. But under this view, it becomes sort of interesting because you could imagine. I mean, first of all, once you start seeing the 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 words for miners that are even just fees as like uh, debt, you can immediately think of doing things like uh, having a delayed reward uh, i think some chains must have tried this uh and ethereum has like complicated reward algorithms were like uncles and stuff anyway so it's sort of like this but you can imagine having like a system where like you get an iou immediately uh, if you're if you mine a block but then you only receive the reward like five blocks later so that's that then becomes much more tangibly debt right so it's like issuing a you know one month bond <laughs> to pay someone you know and so then maybe you even make it so that the the bonds uh, issued to miners are token tokenized. So then you could have like a yield curve, where like the valuation of Bitcoin in one month is like slightly different than you know Bitcoin in two months. So like you could have different uh, different grades of like uh, you know bonds. That'd be an interesting. That'd be would just fun as like a concept, you know. Miners could choose like what date in the future they want uh, to get to be paid in, uh, and they because you could, you could you could do stuff like that where it's like. Uh, You could basically like auction off, uh, you know, when you want to be paid, and you and then you'd have like a time premium. I don't know, just rambling at this point. So yeah, you have another thing you might do is that a chain to bootstrap. um, It's 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 sort of difficult to have. I think decentralized autonomous like exchanges. Like it's difficult for like a chain as like a decentralized project to have like a treasury of foreign currency. But if you could somehow do that, you could imagine like a chain trying to bootstrap itself by paying its miners in bitcoin or something so then the fees would be collected in like the native token chain and then converted uh into like the foreign currency in order to pay the miners and so then like seeing this the chain is like a governmental entity like makes a lot more sense it's kind of like you know pakistan that has to have foreign currency reserves to pay you know uh, people to do stuff like, you know, pay foreign shippers to, you know, bring goods into the country. So you have to pay foreign miners to mine for you uh, using, you know, Bitcoin or whatever sort of neutral currency. So, <laughs> so it, that opens up interesting ideas for chains where you don't, have to, you, you, you're not sort of restricted to using just the uh, native currency or the chain to pay for stuff. Cause like one way to see sort of the mining is like, also it, it, be, it becomes more of like, it makes the security budget thing a bit more clear. Cause you can sort of see what's happening with each block or like, uh or mini blocks is like the the budget of a government. So the government has to pay a certain amount of money for security, or the blockchain rather, it has to pay a certain amount of money for security and they get a certain amount of money through taxation and they can bridge the gap by having deficits. So i i.e. you know, issuing more of their fake tokens. Uh but you know, eventually, you know, if a chain has to be sustainable this is a good closing point actually. If a chain has to be sustainable, basically the the they have to run surpluses at some point. Basically, the chain has to accrue more value than it, you know, prints out in terms of uh, issuing, you know, fees out of thin air, right? So at some point, they start out to running surpluses if the chain has to be sustainable. And if uh, they don't, like, if if the expected surpluses are low, then the value of the token is going to be very low as well. And so th- with this way, you can sort of actually see one one argument that irked me a bit. Was that oh well i have a lot of confidence in this project like the 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 common narrative you hear around speculation is well you know i think a lot of people are going to be using ethereum in the future uh therefore the price of the token should go up i was always a bit skeptical of that but i think if you fly the fiscal theory with the price level it actually gives you a good explanation for why this is actually not a bad idea you know bad theory because basically if the if you know projected future activity on ethereum increases it means you're expecting there to be more future surpluses, because there's more future surpluses relative to the same amount of issuance. Uh, basically, the fiscal theory <laughs> would then say that the value of ETH should increase, because uh, the price level has to adjust, so that the you know real value of the tokens issued matches the real value of the future surpluses you're going to bring in. So if you're bringing in more surpluses, that means that uh, you know you have your debt has to become sort of the tokens have to be worth more it's because you have the price level dividing on the left or multiplying by the right. So basically, if the sort of actual you know effects of my debt become, yeah, <laughs> doing math uh, verbally is hard. So I think it's a good note to, note to end it on. I uh, hope hopefully, hopefully this was actually understandable because I'm really at the edge of my limits of comprehension here. But I think it's a, it's a it's a fun little idea to think about hopefully people that actually know more about e- economics, the inter- the intersection of five people who know what the fiscal theory of the price level is, and who care about tokenomics uh, can comment and tell me where I got wrong, but uh, until then, uh, thanks for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode.